there's nothing less materialist than humanism, believing mm. in human dignity and human rights and equality. I mean, what, where's that come from in nature? Don't be ridiculous. Or they do the opposite, which is what some of these folk are saying, which is we should love one another and that can't be sustained on materialist grounds alone. And so in a way, the more our daily lives become smaller, the more our hearts cry out for something bigger. When our post-everything world has turned life upside down, how do you even know which end is up? If you're committed to a community or a cause greater than yourself, you don't have the luxury of checking out or the freedom to burn out. It's not enough to just keep surviving. We need to thrive again. This is Post Everything. A podcast about remapping culture and rethinking leadership in a liminal age. Welcome to Post Everything. This is John Homus, and I am here with my conversation partner and co-host, Brad Edwards. And today on this episode of Post Everything, we are interviewing Andrew Wilson, author of the new book, Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. Now, just a little bit about Andrew. Andrew is the co-host of a podcast with Glenn Scrivener called Post-Christian. And of course, we love the name of that podcast. But Andrew is also the teaching pastor at King's Church London. He has degrees in both history and theology from Cambridge and King's College London. He's a prolific writer who writes for Christianity Today and has authored several books. And we are excited to talk to him about his new book, Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. Because on this season of Post Everything, we're unpacking the idea of flourishing and formation. And we want to talk to Andrew specifically about how history shapes identity. How does the cultural context that has unfolded over the past hundreds and hundreds of years shape who we are today and how we think about ourselves? So we're excited to get into this podcast. But one more note. You might hear some sound quality issues on this particular episode. We apologize for that, and we're going to fix those in the future. But let's jump into the interview now with Andrew. Well, welcome to Post Everything, everybody. We are here with Andrew Wilson, author of Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. Andrew, thanks for being here. It's great to be with you, John. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's jump right in. We want to unpack a little bit of your book. In your book, you use the idea that Western culture and society is pretty weird, but in your book, you say it's gotten a little weirder, and there's a little play on words there. What do you mean by that acronym, weirder? So I basically stole five-sevenths of it from an American psychologist (laughs) at Harvard called Joseph Henrik, who wrote a book, or he actually initially wrote a paper about 10 or 15 years ago, in which he developed the acronym WEIRD for Western Educated Industrialized Rich and Democratic. And it was basically a paper on psychology and the way in which the people who most psychology research is done on are very weird in that sense compared to the rest of the human race and not very representative because they're generally poor psychology students or uni students who do interviews. And they are, because they're Western and educated and rich and industrialized and democratic, they don't represent most people. And what I did was to expand that acronym by two letters and to add an E and an R, namely ex-Christian and romantic, because I wanted to add a sort of an ideological and spiritual and artistic and more numerous dimension to an acronym that weird on its own is to do with material and institutional factors. You know, we are wealthy, we have 
industrial technology, we are democratic in our norms and politics. But I want to say, yeah, but there's some other things that make Western people unusual as well, namely the legacy and influence of Christianity in shaping our moral and our theological framework, particularly our vision of humanity. And the romanticism, which is a very important movement, which we may get into in a moment. And those two things, to me, they need to supplement a vision of what's unusual about Western people that's based on its material factors, which I think is important, but it's not the whole story. The ideas we carry around with us all the time are also quite distinctive and a major reason why some of those other values are what they are. Yeah. Well, we're talking this season about formation and how different things form us, whether it be spiritual formation or masculine formation, sexual formation. But one of the things we find interesting about your book is you talk about how history shapes us. And in fact, you give this really impressive section where, you know, if someone were to say, oh, what does the weirder stuff matter? Like, how does that influence me? You give this tidal wave of examples of how we're shaped and formed by history, by Western individualism, by things like that. So, you know, it it makes us go just start off with the question, why is history so helpful and important to know how we are shaped and formed? I think in some ways, there's a very common sensey way in which you know you're formed by your history in the sense that who you are now is shaped by who you were five or 15 or 30 years ago. So I think in that sense, we all know it. What we tend to think less about, I think, is the way in which some of the deeper assumptions we hold don't just go back to mum and dad or things we experienced in our early 20s or early teens, but actually can go back sometimes many decades. The kind of sense of humor I have and the kind of sense of humor you have are distinctly different in certain ways because of the experience of the 20th century that we both had and the ways in which your nation and mine interacted or not with the fight against Germany or the Cold War or and it affects all kind the kind of sport you play which obviously the rest of the world thinks are utterly bizarre are products of a uniquely American vision and so actually the most ordinary thing you do you're playing baseball in the yard with your son or whatever is a product of a I mean no one else in the world it pretty much plays that game and it's very trivial but it's actually quite an important part of who you are and it goes back to things that happened many many years many decades ago I one of the examples I in that section you quote uh, you mentioned I throw out the fact that you have taken at least one personality test which pretty much everyone listening yeah. to this will have <laughs> that is a very unusual thing to the idea that the true me is found in a way, I might respond to a series of questions I can find online, and that unlocks some unique gift I have to offer to the world and means that the way I function in a team should be very mindful of that, and it might be used by businesses to decide who to employ or what position to play them. You think, that's a really strange concept, but it comes from a series of quite deep-rooted, as you say, individualistic, and also sort of a culture of self-expression and a culture that the inner me is the real me that goes back to things that happened 250 years ago. And I think you can just mount up dozens and dozens of examples like that to show that our cultural norms are just as dependent on our national histories as our personality types and preferences are on our family histories. So that's in some ways, we all know it's true at a small level. And what I'm doing is just telling that story on a slightly bigger canvas. I mean, there is so much irony just in the fact that part of what makes Western identity Western is this idea that we achieve our own dignity, value, and worth. We self-define who we are, and yet that itself is an assumption that we have received as part of growing up in this world. And so the premise that that's even possible, never mind 
find a good and virtuous or valuable thing or the norm, that just stressed me. I think that's something that your book does a phenomenal job of just not explaining or stating, but like showing and illustrating just how true that is. And so I kind of want to double click on that some more about, you know, what else about growing up in a weirder culture <laughs> has shaped our identity in ways just off the bat that we don't even know or realize that we are operating off of as a premise? Well, there's obviously dozens of ways, and it's just a question of which ones to zero in on. But a couple of examples that strike me mm-hmm. um, that particularly emerged in the first 20 years of this century were because of, and to be honest, I don't want to be disrespectful to anything, but because as a result of 9-11, the response, particularly of your country, but also of mine and others, was to get involved in trying to establish much more Western-like societies in a very short period of time in both the Middle East and in Afghanistan. And those experiments didn't go very well at a political, but also at a social and cultural level. And even just in the withdrawal from Afghanistan two years ago, there were these clips doing the rounds of these sort of Western educators sitting down with Afghan girls trying to teach them basically to be good feminists. And you could see the just incredulity on their faces as they were hearing about whatever it was, (laughs) the Western attitudes to sexuality or gender identity. And you just realize you guys just haven't realized how unusual your take on those things, the idea that you can choose to be whoever you want to be. That is such an unusual belief. You know, these guys have operated with a broadly similar, their technology is very similar now to ours, but their understandings of what makes a human being important and where they find their dignity and where they find their meaning and where they find home and who they are at the deepest level is pretty similar to that which people in the same patch of land had three or four thousand years ago in all sorts of ways, as indeed it might be for those in the Arab world, and in many ways still is in certain ways for those in a lot of Christian cultures, although probably not in the West. So I remember seeing these clips thinking, wow, that is one example of how you Mm. can almost see on camera an utter incomprehension between two groups of people because they don't realize how conditioned and unusual their vision of you can choose to be whoever you want. Romeo and Juliet, you know, the things that your parents have said you must be, you can just break them off and go marry whoever you want, girlfriend. And in many cultures, (laughs) Romeo and Juliet doesn't read like a, even in the middle, doesn't read like a happy story at all. People don't connect with Juliet in the way that Mm. we might. And that's because there's a very different historical narrative there. And I think you can find that in a lot of quite tragic situations now. And you said political level, obviously, in the post 9-11 experiments of, you know, surely democracy is just a, once everyone understands what it is, they'll all do it. One example in an early draft of the book, if I can just go here and then I will be quiet. But Please, no, no, you're great. One example I had in an early draft of the book and then took out because I just couldn't fit it in and make sense of it was roundabouts, which is basically a really fascinating feature. You've probably seen them or whatever in basically parts of the world where roundabouts when they introduce them they work really well in britain everyone observes roundabouts but you put them in some parts of the world and they don't work at all because the norms surrounding them are not established and in fact they make the traffic far worse if you put a roundabout in a culture that doesn't already have lots of other norms and the economist ran a feature on this saying that's exactly the same as democracy democracy and roundabouts are in their modern form british exports that go out and people try and plonk them in other parts of the world and find that the norms aren't there to sustain them Mm. and everything actually gets much worse rather than better when they're done and I just found it quite a mischievous article that I stuck in my mind about 10 years ago and I thought yeah that's what we do we extract and almost make abstract a concept we think works liberalism secularism humanism democracy 
self-chosen identity and we plonk it in another culture that doesn't have the Christianized norms we have and everyone goes what in the world are you talking about and everything yeah. unravels and that's a lot of the history of the last 20 years of western entanglements in other parts of the world it's interesting you mentioned the roundabout because Brad and I used to live in St. Louis and there was a roundabout in the middle of the park and it was like so <laughs> dangerous. It was so dangerous. People would just literally go into the roundabout and then look after they went. They didn't know how to yield. So I thought about starting a campaign and just standing there with a sign that said, slow down. I actually lived in London for a little while around 2006 and worked with a church in Northwest London. Oh, wow. And I, I watched a lot of movies and it was so interesting to find from the community that had immigrated to London from South Asia, India, Pakistan. So many of the movies that I watched were about the children of those who had immigrated wrestling with radical individualism and Western mm. culture norms. And so it was just so fascinating. Every movie had this. It was like the parents had this traditional view of culture. Yeah. They wanted to keep their culture. And then the children would experience this way of having an identity in Western society and would ultimately usually reject their parents' culture and go, you know, maybe it's a Pakistani marrying a white woman. And that was really challenging for the parents. So that's an interesting little way of thinking about the reality of the rest of the world not being weirder. <laughs> yeah. Of course, those movies, the Western versions of those movies, in the end, they almost always have, in fact, in every example I've seen like that, the Western values win. And it's a story about the yeah. triumph of the Western value. The one I watched most recently is uh, Freddie Mercury. And I can't remember even the name of the movie. Bahamian Rhapsody is called. And it's yes, one yes. of the best performances I've ever seen from Rami Malek. And he plays Freddie Mercury. And he is obviously from this very you know, conservative South Asian family. But then he basically becomes like a Western. And then, of course, the movie ends with these conservative, I think they're from India, parents kind of cheering on their very flamboyant, outwardly gay son going, yeah, OK, we embrace it. But of course, what you never see is the reverse narrative where the Western person goes out into a more traditional culture and finds that their norms are co-opted by the local culture or forced <laughs> to conform to the local culture. And even the fact that the stories we choose to tell reinforce, in the end, Western values are better, aren't they? So in the end, of course, we'll end up overcoming the traditional ones. And that's, again, in the background to a lot of the last 20 years' worth of foreign entanglements. Man, that's such a good illustration of just how... The narrative and the story of Western culture is not this black or white thing. There are good things and there are problematic things that come about from that individualism. Yeah. You write on page 134 of your book, you said, here's the great irony. In many ways, the transition to a weirder world has made practicing Christianity harder. Increases in wealth, power, sex permissiveness, independence, and individualism have generally been associated with smaller families, lower church attendance, and weaker religious observance for a variety of very contested reasons. Yet the weirder transition is itself a product of Christian influence. It would never have happened without it. Christendom, in effect, was hoisted by its own petard. Beyond just the artfulness of using the word petard in a sentence, not ironically, um, <laughs> I, I really, what I appreciate, right? What I appreciate about that is just like, I live in a place just outside of Boulder, Colorado, where I can't even tell you how many people move here to quote unquote find themselves, mm -hmm. right? And by definition, if you are moving here from somewhere else, that means you are valuing whatever it is this place provides more than the, 
the community, the social fabric and relationships that you had, you were. And so I'm convinced it draws particularly individualistic people, even with a culture of individualism. And just like kind of other books like The Great Teaching have really helpfully pointed out and outlined is that like this is kind of an atmospheric pressure that we're seeing in church attendance and in the struggle that people are having in the practice of their faith. And I'm just kind of curious, I know there are subtle and significant differences between the way that church culture and evangelicalism is kind of evolving in America versus Britain, but I'm just curious, like, how are you putting some of these things at practice in terms of the process of writing this book? How has it made you see your own role as a pastor differently and the church where you are differently in an individualistic culture? What are some of the implications for that in terms of how you can help people wrestle with where they are? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge question because I think this is one of the most ubiquitous phenomena in Western culture, isn't it? You're just, yeah. no matter where you go, you're bumping up against this every time you see a movie or, as you just said, you know, look at an advert on a bus or whatever. I think for me, in terms of what to do about it, I do think... Mm consciousness raising or whatever you call it, making people aware that A, this is something they have in a profound way, and B, mm. this is something that is not universal in human experience, does its own bit of self-debunking, actually, for a lot of people. For exactly the reason that you slightly sort of facetiously said a moment ago, like, we kind of go to discover ourselves without realizing that we are being taught to do that by our culture. Most people who are doing it to discover themselves find a little unsettling the idea that they're only doing it because their culture has discipled them into that way of thinking about what identity is. Mm. And so I think showing people, look, this is something that runs very deep in you, runs very deep in pretty much every book or movie you've read or seen. It probably runs very deep even in your family, which for most societies has been the place where your individualism, to the extent it exists at all, is not given any truck. And your whole story is about emancipation from expectations like that. Yes. But that's not universal. And in fact, lots of human beings don't live like that and actually find identity far less of a struggle because they don't. Yeah. Because their identity is given to them and they're not spending their whole teenage years going, who am I? Whereas they say, well, there are problems with this as well, of course. But one of the benefits is they say, well, you are the son of so-and-so and the grandson of so-and-so and you are part of this group of people, part of this religious tradition, you belong to this land and probably going to do this career. And given those things, whereas a Western person is going, man, all of those things are up in the air. I don't even know. I don't even know whether I'm male or female sometimes, let alone whether those other things are true. And I think showing people mm. that firstly, as I say, that that's a very deep thing in them. And secondly, that it's a very contingent thing that many don't share does its own work. Because people then say, oh, why? Mm. so why am I like that? And do I want to be like that? It almost raises the question of whether they need to embrace it. On its own, that doesn't solve a problem, but it makes them aware that it is an issue, or that it makes it aware that at yeah. the very least, it's something that might have been otherwise, and for many people is. And that then, it depends on the person, because some people say, well, so much the worse for you know other societies. I want to be like this. And I say, okay, well, that's fine. At the moment, that may not be the way through for you. But for some mm. people, it is, because... Often, if somebody's even coming into or in association with a church community, they've got a complication coming from me as a pastor, preacher, someone just sharing with them on the side of a football pitch or whatever. But at the same time, they've got a complication coming from the fact they are observing a real community and they might have lots of mm. problems with it. But very few people see a church functioning as churches normally do and don't think 
that community is quite unusual in the modern West. Mm. It's not a shared interest group. It's very socially diverse, relative, even in a fairly homogenous area. And so when those two things come together, they can actually slightly jolt people. They go, well, I'm hearing this and thinking, oh, I'm more aware than I was about this thing that's very deep in me of individualism. But I'm also seeing an alternative, even if I'm not yet sure I like it. And yeah. I think that can be a helpful way of... It's, it's almost like loosening the lid of the ketchup bottle. It's by no means the whole picture, but I think it gets you started. Yeah, while you're describing that, I was thinking especially of how so many times when people do encounter that social diversity within the church, it's jarring. And because the posture has been one of trying to build or achieve one's own identity, that diversity then becomes a threat because now I'm not surrounding myself with the people that I want to become more like. And so therefore this is destabilizing. And it's interesting because, you know, when we use the word diversity as a good thing or a value, normally we mean at least left of center, but I'm using it in the most neutral of ways. And that knife cuts on both directions because I can't tell how many times people have been surprised to discover that somebody voted for the other person in our church. And it's like, you start having a crisis. Like, this means that there's a church that actually has Christ as the highest value, and therefore we are not dividing over these other things. This should be good news for you. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just fascinating, yeah, how absolutely true that is. I'm curious, it comes to the foreground, but it's always in the background of your book, is kind of the role of institutions in Western culture. And one of the things that has been especially jarring over the last (laughs) few years in particular is the way that things that used to just be values, it seems like the more unanchored individuals become from institutions, the more these values start to become identities. And the more they become kind of a hyper-focus or hyper-emphasis spiritually, even if it's a secular person, like it has a spiritual significance in, in so many ways. And it almost has metastasized in a sense. Yeah. Use the example of like uh, emancipation as kind of, that's not just a value. It's a full-blown ideology now in a lot of ways. And so how do you wrestle with the way that institutions are seen now and in ways especially that it feels like, at least in American culture, American West culture, I'm finding myself having to persuade people that there can be any good from institutions. And actually, the very thing that you fear from institutions is the thing that you are selling yourself to by not having institutions as a refuge. Whether that is like a fear of your voice being being squashed. That's institutional spaces where you actually have a voice and participate in that middle layer society. So I'm not framing the question very well here, but I'm just curious, like, how do the institutional fabric of Western society and its kind of erosion factor into the, the history that you've written here? Yeah, it really helped me to see the demise of institutions generally, so to basically to see that what's happening in the church is being part of not just one wider trend, but two. The demise of the, uh, say the demise of the church, but the people leaving the church. The church has got less cultural influence than it did. Mm. At one level, it's important to go, that is true of institutions 
generally that individualism has basically taken over. This is true of, I don't know whether all these terms mean the same thing in America, but working men's clubs or pubs or, you know, the, the bowling alone thing, Putnam's, you know, thing about yeah, you know, yeah. people in sporting participation, people belonging to unions, public sector unions, all lots and lots of those, you know, Edmund Burke's, you know, mediating institutions or little platoons, those kind of things, which sit in between the state and the individual, that all of those, including the family have suffered in the sort of post-war years in terms of influence, membership, prestige, and so on. That's one trade. And I think most people concede that that's true, that it isn't just the church, it's that people are just opting out of those institutions generally. But a second thing is to say that that is not simply a result of ideological change, where people simply think of themselves as being an individual, where they used to think of themselves as part of a community. And we've just been spending 15 minutes talking about that, and it's clearly a thing. But it's also a result of ultimately just economic and industrial and material change. And that in a way, what happens is, you know, it's a product of affluence that people can mm. connect with more people and feel like they've got more hobbies that they like uh, because they've got enough, they've got more leisure time than they did. They've got more money to spend on themselves than they did. A series of books I read that really influenced me on the history of post-war Britain was just saying, in the end, although you think in the 1960s, everyone's, you know, getting high and dancing onto the Beatles and stuff. Actually, most people aren't. Most people are gardening. <laughs> and most people are watching television. And, they do, yeah. and they, what they would have done, they would have gone to football matches with their dad and their granddad. And now they don't. They basically, they're at home at the weekend, pottering about. They're doing DIY. You know, I don't know if that translates. You know, but as in they're building things in their home. They're, you know, they're working on their gardens. They're watching TV. And that actually, that it's not just that institutions generally have lost ground relative to the culture. It's also that that is a product, not only of ideas. So it's not just to be fought at the ideological level. It's just a product of people being really rich proportionately. And that doesn't help me in a way solve it in a sense at all. But it does mean I don't overreact to the problem. And I don't say mm. this is because the church has uniquely bungled something thing and become mm. as you know and obviously the church has bungled many many things and i trust we don't need to make that case here and we're seeing it every day but that the reason why people are dissociating from broader communities is not just because we haven't been convincing enough with our ideas it's partly a product of late modernity and affluence so then I can say this is something that actually affects everybody and it affects all of us. So if I'm trying to address it, what I'm often saying is, look, I've actually got to make a different kind of appeal to you, which is that there are some areas in your life in which you will have to sacrifice some autonomy in order to gain some community. Mm. And that's the trade-off you're always making. And you could spend all your time at home in the garden doing DIY, watching TV online. But I think all of us know that our lives get smaller when we do that. But in order to get the community you want, you have to sacrifice some independence mm. and freedom. You have to curtail your choices Absolutely. to take account of those of others. And if you don't do that, you don't get the community you crave. And you start very, very small. You say, that's marriage. That's parenting. <laughs> that's things that most people have some sort of aspiration to do. You start there and you say, it's also true of the extended family, which obviously many of us have jettisoned. In your case, as you just said, Brad, like people just moved away. Their, their family's thousands of them are in Florida still. And I'm in Boulder, so what do I care? But you've got to move out from the very small ways in which we know this is true. And the church then is actually one of those really quite primal institutions, well before people get to belong into a union or a club or a common interest society. It's one of those things where you say, yeah, this is very early on. It's more like a family for you to feel known and to know and for you to feel mm. loved and to love. There are some elements of freedom that you compromise. That's true of the church. And of course, it's also by extent, it's true of God. Mm. 
So I think that's kind of how you, again, conceptually, but you don't isolate that. You don't say the church has got a unique problem here. This is part mm. of the shakedown of post-war America and Britain. And I can't turn that around on my own and I'm not going to try to, but I do want to help people see it and then step into a community on the other side of it. That's Amazing. good. Andrew, I want to ask a little bit about Ayan Hirsi Ali the prominent public intellectual who was a Muslim turf atheist, and then she recently converted to Christianity. And it seems like some of her reasons for conversion actually relate to the thesis in your book, in many ways. A couple of quotes that she said in an article, Why I'm Now a Christian. She says, as Tom Holland has shown in his marvelous book, Dominion, all sorts of apparently secular freedoms of the market, of conscience, and of the press, they find their roots in Christianity. And so I've come to realize that Bertrand Russell and my atheist friends failed to see the wood for the trees. The wood is the civilization built on Judeo-Christian tradition, and it is the story of the West, warts and all. She goes on to say a little later in that same article, yet I would not be truthful if I attributed my embrace of Christianity solely to the realization that atheism is too weak and divisive a doctrine to fortify us against all our menacing foes. I have also turned to Christianity because I ultimately found life without any spiritual solace, unendurable, indeed very nearly self-destructive. Atheism failed to answer a simple question, what is the meaning and purpose of life? End of quote. So here's my question. Now, certainly, Ayan Hirsi Ali's not a one-dimensional figure. You know, she's from the global south. She's lived in the West. But could her conversion from Islam to atheism and then to Christianity be sort of a parable of religious and ideological shifts in the modern West and maybe even some hopeful shifts? And are her reasons for converting as significant as they seem? Well, I really hope so. And I don't think she's alone. I think there's a number of examples. If I think back over the last few years of people who have either said, I've become a Christian or I'm much more Christian than I was. Sometimes people say it in odd ways, like I'm now a Christian atheist or I'm a lapse atheist or those sorts Mm. of comments. But obviously her husband, Niall Ferguson, I think is in that bracket. Uh, Tom Holland, Martin Shaw, Paul Kingsnorth, Louise Perry, Mary Harrington. There's quite a lot of people in that sort of space. And my friend Glenn Scrivener, who I've done the podcast with, he's interviewed a number of these people, Douglas Murray. So you've got these quite interesting characters who represent really quite, in some ways, what they represent in the secular world, quite different people and different backgrounds. But often either through, a couple of those guys have come to faith, the sort of through the natural world and through the sort of finding basically paganism or in one case, you know, witchcraft really, just too anemic, just just not metaphysically Mm. satisfying. And then others have come to it through a sort of sense that the values they really cherish were incapable of being sustained by a sort of materialist set of assumptions they had. And you've got that sort of post-new atheist thing going on as well, where it was just the intellectual fact was obviously you, you can see that these other things don't work. We really need to be quite bullishly atheistic. And some people, bless them, are still there. But a lot of people have, that's waned. And it's split into some people have just gone back into hiding. Some people have become much more militantly 
you know, intersectional, progressive, that sort of thing, from who would have been the new atheists. And others have gone a bit more like, well, that's at least just open up the question of whether the kind of values we really cherish are going to survive if their metaphysical foundations are removed. Mm. And to the extent that that's happening, I find it really exciting because I think, as you say, it's exactly the kind of case, you know, I started work on the book, in fact, published the book before I on, and certainly without really aware of a number of those other people's journeys when I did. But I think it's because that story is quite resonant for modern people. I quote the aphorism, you know, in the book, this sort of Russian philosopher who said, man descended from apes, therefore we must love one another. As a way of <laughs> just stating the non sequitur yeah. of the heart of Western civilization. Uh-huh. But it is actually quite an arresting sentence because most people will affirm both of those things. You know, most educated secular people say, I believe both of those things. And I can also see that that because just doesn't make any sense. But I've never really pressed into what I do with that. Hmm. And I think that is one of the gaps in the armor in the sort of standard materialist, secular, humanist kind of worldview. Again, Glenn, who I just quoted, Glenn Scriven, he's quite good at saying this. When someone says, I'm a secular humanist, I say, well, which one? Are you a secular person or are you a humanist? Or are, you, are you a materialist or a humanist? Because you can't be both of those things because there's nothing less materialist than humanism, believing mm. in human dignity and human rights and equality. I mean, what, where's that come from in nature? Don't be ridiculous. And that's one of the reasons in the book I went into people like Saad, the Marquis de Saad, because I find occasionally, yeah. like Nietzsche yeah. did, atheists go, yeah, I buy this. I'm going to say man descended from apes, therefore we must not love one another. Actually, that's just a Christian hangover. Or they do the opposite, which is what some of these folk are saying, which is we should love one another. And that can't be sustained on materialist grounds alone. So whatever I think about evolution, I need to have a belief about God or some metaphysical grounding for these moral convictions I hold very dearly indeed. So yeah, I'm very excited by that development, I, partly because it's, it's, I'm quite into those ideas, but also because the people I'm seeing embracing them are often very intellectually compelling individuals with a big voice in our culture. And I think, yeah, they, may they be the first of many. Man, I kind of want to ask on that note, because it feels like kind of two parallel evolution is happening at the same time. They feel related, but I can't quite connect the dots. And I'm wondering if you can help me with this. On the one hand, because of the increase in economic affluence, the continued advancement of technology, I mean, you could play a, a very dangerous drinking game based on how often I beat up on social media with our podcast. So that is a very real thing. There is this kind of continuing hyperbolic progression of Charles Taylor's disenchantment happening. We are increasingly becoming unrooted from our place, more into a digital area where we have even more ability to shape what we see as reality than we did even in a post-industrial age, right? And I think a good example of just kind of how I've tried to communicate this to our people of saying, because we're in Colorado and it snows sometimes, right? <laughs> like, hey, it's snowing outside. Did that interfere with your getting to church this morning? No, it's only a couple inches. And you're also in Colorado, so of course you're going to be okay. But even then, the fact that we are just used to not even asking the question, if the weather will affect our ability to Sabbath with the body of Christ, like we are not used to nature being a problem for us anymore, that we can control it. The consequence of that is that we kind of think that about anything. And as we increasingly become more digital in our life and connections, then 
we're going to be even more disenchanted, right? Yeah. So that's one stream and one parallel. And then the other is, it seems like these values, these Christendom values that you especially like do a phenomenal job of helping us see more clearly their roots in, in your book, those, as those values become full-blown identities or even ideologies, they will come more and more distant from Christianity, right? They will become less recognizable the more of a caricature that they become. And so you have these two things, moving culture further away from Christianity, and they're very related. I'm wondering kind of with everything that you're talking about with kind of the new atheism and watching these really intelligent people start feeling an existential need for the mystery and beauty and goodness of the Christian faith. Are we wrong to see like a, I don't want to overstate this, but that seems like extremely fertile soil Mm. culturally for what you're talking about. And so I guess my question is this, how are these two streams connected? This kind of simultaneous disenchantment, but also a pseudo secular, secular pseudo religions kind of being formed and shaped out of need and using hiking kind of Christian values for that. Mm. So basically, what's that lovely Elliot quote, isn't it? Humankind cannot bear very much reality. Mm. <laughs> I, I, That's good. I think what we do is the more in control, like this, COVID was quite a good example, I think. So COVID simultaneously mm. does some things that re-enchant the world and some things that disenchant it further. So at one level, it says to all the people you're talking about who don't worry about the snow anymore, hey, there are things out here that are bigger than you that are going to put your whole life up the spout in an mm. almost overnight. And you're suddenly going to realize we are not as omnipotent as we thought we were. So you're going to have to trust extraneous things more than you did and you got less agency than you thought and all those things, which is a sort of re-enchanting thing. But at the same time, it pushed everybody online mm. and made everyone, you know, the fact that um, we could have done this conversation before, but we probably would have been less likely to have it certainly in this way. And sometimes you have conversations like this with people who only live a mile away from your house. And, <laughs> and so there's a disenchantment and a re-enchantment both happening simultaneously through the same event. Mm. And I think they're symbiotic because what happens is people become more and more detached from bodies as people become more Gnostic, I suppose, in their practice, if not in their outlook. I think the two are connected, but um, yeah. you become more removed from physical things, physical beings. You increasingly consume entertainment. You just spend your life on, you know, a little device you hold in your pocket. And, but actually, the more you do that, the more the craving in you for, you know, in the middle of COVID, how much did you want to hug someone? Like this sort of compulsion that you just didn't used to have. You're suddenly like, oh my goodness, a physical person. I can sit at it. Maybe you didn't have lockdowns like we did, but certainly where we are, it was like you're craving the ability to go to a, a supermarket and hold an orange in your hand or sit in a coffee shop with a cup and not, oh, man. you know yeah. what I mean, have the whole thing. Like, physicality becomes more important the more disembodied you become. And I think there is a version of that at a spiritual level as well, which is the more you suppress the sort of reality of things other than the individual self and his own self-created entertainment universe with his sort of headphones and his earbuds and his little screen the more the thing inside that goes, but I must, I need to flourish as a person. I need people. I need community. I need love. I need vulnerability. I need risk. I need exposure to something bigger than me. I need transcendence. And so in a way, the more our daily lives become smaller, the more our hearts cry out for something bigger. That's the way I understand it. I could be wrong about that, but I remember reading Tom Wright about 15 years ago, used the analogy of for spirituality in the West 
in about 2010, I think, maybe earlier. And he just used the example of basically a, a sort of a group of people who tried to control a nation where the state tried to control the water supply and make sure that there was never any problem with it. And they regulated everything and they concreted over all the natural springs and all the rivers and simply just gave it through pipes that you could get through the approved medium. So it was always clean. And that what happens is in the end, people are not satisfied with it at all. They're desperate for the river. And eventually the water begins to bubble up under the surface mm. and it pierces through the concrete and you get these spurts everywhere and the water breaks out. And he says, that's what spirituality is doing in the modern West. And I, wow. again, I hope that's true, but I think that's how I would account for it. In a sense, your disenchantment is the putting of the concrete, but the re-enchantment is the fact that the water will always find a way through. And I think that's to some degree what these folk we've been talking about are I hope, harbing us off. And I think mm. in some ways, so are we in the fact that we're having this conversation in the way we are. I love that analogy. That is so helpful to understand the relationship there. I'm just in the ordinary ministry, not the like public thinkers and intellectuals and what have you. Like, do you see any patterns for what is it that makes that spirituality break through the concrete? Like, are there any conditions or common denominators there that are helpful for us to maybe be, yeah, there, just be on the lookout? Yeah, I mean, the most ordinary things in the world, I mean, a language I sometimes use, it, it makes the gap between heaven and earth seem much thinner. Reality mm. feels thinner. Like, again, I mentioned this about family, but just like births, deaths, and marriages do that. Like, they're just so evangelistically fertile as ordinary settings in churches. But when people have a baby, even if they don't baptize the baby or, or christen them or dedicate them or whatever you call it, People having a baby, mm. there's a moment you're just sort of confronted with this reality going, I know that I believe this is just matter giving birth to matter, but I kind of don't. I think there's something more yeah. magical about this. Same is true of, of death for obvious reasons. It makes everyone think about their own death, but it also goes, if all that was happening is the man going back to the dust and the spirit returning to him who gave it, then I wouldn't feel like this, but I feel like something's been lost from the world, which is silly because if I'm just atoms, I wouldn't. Mm. So it makes materialism more difficult to hold. Marriage does that because these promises do, at their best, appeal to a transcendent reality that is, you know, obviously they, you can strip it of almost all its Christian meaning and it becomes a bit schmaltzy, but there's mm. still often some, we, we had, a, you know, friends of ours came to, or relatives of mine actually came to our wedding and heard the vows and were just like, man, if I believe that, I don't think I'm going to be able to marry the person I'm with. <laughs> and they broke up as a result. They were just like that because I know I'm never going to say that because that's too meaningful for me mm. in this context. And they've happily married somebody else now. So those are some examples. I think, sometimes I think disasters. I think mm. COVID in a way, 9-11, those, some of the examples we've mentioned, I think do that. I find it a very much more sort of ordinary church life way. I find people come into church and they see I mean I'm from a charismatic church and we make a big thing we're very lots of music and lots of hands raised and emotion and that. so that's our church background but I think it happens in other settings as well but people walk in and they go I don't know why I can't even explain what I'm experiencing but people just burst into tears often and they're just mm. like I can't understand what I'm expecting but there is something that I don't see here just seeing these very different people singing would be something I think an awful lot of people pray and don't know why or even to whom even your own version, like a secular festival like Thanksgiving, which I know is not secular in its origins, but, you know, who are you giving thanks to? Yeah. As in a lot of the rituals in our culture, I suppose, an equivalent would be the coronation this last year and the death of the mm -hmm. queen the year before. And 
these sort of religious pageantry makes people go, I don't have a place for that. This very meaningful event that brings us all together. I can't fit it into my normal account of things. And all of those things are just sort of quite ordinary things that relate to everybody, but cracks in the concrete. They are places where it becomes harder to sustain this sort of sharp separation between, you know, matter and spirits or whatever. You start thinking maybe they're coming together here in some way. So I think the natural world is that for a lot of people as well. A couple of the guys I mentioned, that's their story. They, mm. It's in the end. I mean, Paul Kingsnorth's beautiful essay at first things. Where he said the cross and the machine. It's like those are the two routes before us. You, the way of the cross, the way of the machine. That's the choice before. And, and in the end, he was like, I just can't be doing with this one. I've got to go to the cross as much as I, I really didn't want to. So I think there's lots of ways in which that happens for people. And it doesn't always lead them to Christian orthodoxy, obviously. It sometimes leads right. them to very weird syncretistic spiritualities, but, but it doesn't very often lead people happily sitting there in their materialist package with a screen and a machine and going, I'm completely satisfied here. All my existential needs are met. I was like, there's not many people who tell that story, I think. I love that. You just help connect dots for me because uh, one of the things that I tell our people all the time when they're like, so what do I tell my neighbors? Like, how do I love my neighbors? How do I explain the gospel to someone who, who you know, in our cultural context? And I, I, it's funny because I don't think I've realized until the last couple of years, actually until COVID, how much we have reduced the gospel and, and what evangelism looks like to the information of the gospel and not the incarnation of the gospel that is Christ's earthly presence in the world until he returns. And that's the church. And so what I found myself telling people is like, okay, if disenchantment is accurate, and, and if that is actually what many people in the world are experiencing, then talk about the re-enchantment you've experienced in the church and why. Because that's actually the church's purpose. And you don't have to actually remember everything about justification by faith alone to, in order to like explain the gospel, just talk about the beauty of Christ as you experience him in the body of Christ and as part of the bride of Christ. And that that's actually far more powerful than the right information in a lot yes. of ways. And, and the information comes, right? But it's actually that experience of it, the re-enchantment that I just feel like an incredible untapped yeah. gift and treasure we have. Hugely. I mean, we're obviously recording this in between, you know, in the middle of the week in our church anyway, the two carol services we do where we, you know, in British terms, quite a big church. We have thousands of people come to our carol services, many of them not Christians. And I preached last Sunday, I'm preaching this next Sunday. And it's like a little thing. It's like a 10 minute like mm. devotion, homily thing, really heaven and nature saying like, hey, this is the Christmas story. We, I don't dive into atonement theory in a setting like that. I, I just find that as you're talking about the yeah. wonder of earth and heaven rejoicing together and the idea that heaven calls out and earth responds that we just had so many people would say to me or others on our pastoral stuff like yeah I'm not really a religious person but I just I was really moving or really thought provoking and I don't think they're just being nice I think it would be very easy for them to just leave slam the door and go I've had my mild wine I'm gone but often people <laughs> like I don't hear this kind of thing yeah there is a heavenly side of me that's calling i do believe god has set eternity in the hearts of men and women and mm. whether that's what that text meant or not i experience it in the sense i mean it all the time is there is a, a pull a, you are not just stuff yeah you are word as well as flesh you know th there is some of that calling out from people and it's and so yeah seasons 
religious festivals. Uh, there are other examples where the concrete gets thinner, and uh, but I just think mm. there's loads of them when you look. Beautiful. That's good. We want to ask just a couple questions to wind down the interview with you. Uh, we've been talking mostly diagnostic questions, and I want to ask one more and then kind of close with a prescriptive question. I was looking online and just went on the YouTube and put your book in and your name and just saw what come up. And I got some book reviews and it made me kind of think when you share these ideas, have you seen any themes from people who push back on the thesis of the book versus people who are hungry for the thesis of the book? It hasn't been out long enough and I probably don't spend enough time on YouTube for that to be. (laughs) I mean, I've had pushback, you know, funny bits and pieces like a review I read this last week that was saying, well, actually, that event wasn't 1776. It was 17. You know, I know what date it was, but they're like, this doesn't fit the thesis because the thesis is this one year changed everything. (laughs) Canon actually didn't publish it until 1780. Well, that kind of thing. So I've had that. And, you know, like, okay, well, that's fine. But I don't. It all falls apart if those those, those four years. (laughs) Man. Um, And and obviously, I want to get you know I, it's not i don't think they're saying i've got the date wrong i think they're just saying you're sort of slightly overplaying the significance of one year i'm like yeah that's fine it's a book <laughs> yeah i haven't though to my knowledge had a pushback to the, i suppose either of the two the, the thing that i think brad quoted a, a while back mm. the idea that you know the christendom is hoisted by its own petard thing so mm. which is really two parts that christianity has made the world like this and now that world is making it harder to be a christian i think both of those seem pretty widely accepted what you do about them is obviously much more controverted. And I think there'll probably be plenty of people who might not think the book goes far enough in answering that question, which it probably doesn't. But I haven't yet, it may be that there's more than I know, but I haven't yet heard a sort of strong rebuttal to either of those two central claims. But that may be because I just, I genuinely don't spend very much time reading, you know, negative reviews or watching YouTube. So it may be that they are out there and I've not seen them, but I don't think so. There seems to be a strong resonance with both of those things. I think the question you often get back is either, is that a bad thing? I think there's plenty of, of course, very secular people who would simply go, eh, yeah, we did get these values from Christianity and I still don't want to be a Christian. And the fact that that's inconsistent, well, who cares? You definitely get that. But it's not many people saying, when they've actually thought about it and engaged with the history and the genealogy of it, there's not many people saying, no, these ideas have got nothing to do with Christianity or mm. no, those ideas don't make being a Christian now more difficult. But there's some probably questions of application where there's plenty of work still to do, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm. We've enjoyed the book. We've enjoyed interacting with it. Part of our podcast, our subtitle for the podcast is Remapping Culture and Rethinking Leadership. And so, you know, as someone who's studied history, who has poured into giving us a map of the past, where do you think a map might be headed in the future in terms of where culture is heading in the next 25 years? And it's hard to say, but like, hey, if you had a prediction. Yeah, I'm terrible at this kind of thing. I mean, I, <laughs> my, <laughs> 20, my friends all laugh because in 2016, I was like, no, Brexit is, yeah, there won't be Brexit. No, Hillary's going to win, not Trump. I mean, I just got everything wrong. Like, they just, it's very funny. I'm an optimist by nature, and I generally think that the thing I want to happen will happen and then get very surprised when it doesn't, which made the mid-years of the previous decade very, very troubling. Um, no, I don't really have any good predictions like that. I mean, some of the obvious questions I'm asking and wanting to know more about of like everybody, what's going to be the impact of AI and how far are people going to let it run and how far are 
corporates as well as states going to try and rein it in and mm. are, will be concerned about it. I think I'm interested by whether what happens to society if, as seems to be the case, the Western economic growth curve has turned into an S-curve rather than an E-curve. And if that happens, what implications does that have for debates about the role of the state in providing services and taxation, but migration and those... So those sort of political questions, which are... I've got no idea which way that will go, but what is the out? What does what do the comfort democracies do mm. when their demands and longevity mean that they need more and more stuff and more and more healthcare, but their economy doesn't grow anymore because energy is no longer as cheap and plentiful or as environmentally okay as it was seen to be before? So that's an interesting. I don't know what happens there. And of course, my main concern is what happens with the church. What happens? And I, I, what happens with you know? Do we see revival? Do we see breakthrough? Do we see? I couldn't have foreseen some of the things we've talked about here two years ago or four years ago. Before certainly not before COVID. So I'm both terrible at this game and quite skeptical of its value most of the time. I do think we are all going to need to reckon with. I think demography is probably the closest I've got to a trend you, that you can see mm. now. Birth rates are going to mean the world is very different when there's as many Nigerians as Americans, or when there's five times as many people in this section of sub-Saharan Africa as there are in Western Europe. You can see how that's going to impact the world and how that will impact the church and how, which for me is largely a good thing. I'm a pastor of a black majority Pentecostal charismatic church, so I think that's wonderful for the church, but there's many people who probably wouldn't. But there'd be some trends there that you can begin to see through just things like birth rates. But beyond that, I'm really not your guy for sort of finger in the air predictions. And I think anything, even the ones I've said now, as a result of me saying them, will turn out not to be true. And it'll turn out <laughs> Europe experiences a demographic boom. It uh, <laughs> uh, doesn't seem likely to me, but who knows? Well, even if you don't have a prediction, I think it is actually really helpful to hear someone who is smart and attentive to these things saying, I don't know, but also hearing your voice you're not worried and that you're hopeful uh, still. And that's uh, encouraging because I used to be an optimist and <laughs> I missed that. So that's like, oh, it's maybe it's possible again. <laughs> Tim Keller has a really great line uh, in How to Reach the West Again, where he just says, everything is unprecedented once. I might quote it in the book, actually. I can't remember if I do. Mm. And he just says, everything that God has done in history was unprecedented before he did it. And I just think whether that means revival like the like we've seen before, I tend to think not, actually. I, I mm. personally, I tend to think it's, we might use the word revival for it because we don't know what else to call it, but my expectation is the phenomenon might be very different. But actually, nothing like the Methodist movement or the Great Awakening had ever been seen before they happened. Nothing like the Reformation had happened. You know, nothing like, you know, the Hildebrandine reforms had ever happened before they did. Nothing like the conversion of Constantine had happened before it did. All of these huge events. And I, I just think we're going to see something like that at some point, but I don't mm. know what it is. And I kind of wouldn't want to guess. Well, we've been talking with Andrew Wilson, author of Remaking the World, How 1776 Created the Post-Christian West. We will include a link to that in the show notes. But Andrew, this has been mind-bending. This has been uh, informative. And we've had some good laughs along the way. So thank you so much for joining us on Post Everything. <laughs> I'm so glad. Thank you so much. It's been great to be with you. John, well, 
we could talk about a lot of different points of this conversation, but I'm curious what's hitting you kind of first and foremost. What's your so what? Yeah, well, I thought Andrew was just fun and informative to talk to. So I really enjoyed that. But something he said really stuck in my mind, I kind of ran with where he said, you know, the church hasn't uniquely bungled something here. Like as we look up the setup of the culture (laughs) and as we look at kind of the state of the church right now, I think it's important what he said that the church hasn't uniquely bungled something. Now, here's the thing. The church is always messing things up. It's always bungling something. But I thought the word unique was interesting here. Because here's how people respond. When the church fails, there's some people who are like, yeah, whatever, we can just ignore this and move on. And like, in general, the church is a positive force and it's God's instrument in the world. And so we can just kind of ignore the things that the church bungles and move on. And then there's sort of another response on the other end of the spectrum, which is like, oh my gosh, the church isn't doing what it's supposed to. The sky is falling and it's the church's fault. (laughs) And so (laughs) as I thought about what he said, I was like, you know, if we want to root this biblically, every one of the New Testament letters that Paul writes, maybe except Ephesians, every one of them, Paul is writing to a specific church in a specific place that has bungled something. Mm, And every one of them has bungled something different. So some of the churches have practices and behaviors that are not in line with the gospel, AKA Corinth, right? Or to say the least. Yeah. What a messed up church. Whenever anyone says, I want to be like the early church, I'm like, be careful which church you get. (laughs) Like, have you read the new Testament? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But then secondly, every one of the churches that Paul writes to has ideas and beliefs as well as practices and behaviors that are not in line with the gospel. Mm -hmm. So the truth is the church is always embracing something from the culture that it shouldn't. And the church is always bungling something. It's been doing that since Jesus ascended into heaven. Like it wasn't long before there was some sort of mess up that happened. Even Peter who is filled with the Holy Spirit, gets called out by Paul for excluding the Gentiles from, you know, spaghetti dinner at church. And so there's always a bungling that's happening in the church. And here's why I think that's helpful. I think it's helpful because we're not doing something uniquely wrong in this moment. And we're still messing up, but that doesn't mean the sky is falling. And that doesn't mean that God has abandoned the church as the sinner and locus Mm. for his purposes in the world. I think rather we go, okay, what happens every time the church bungles something in the new Testament? Well, Paul calls it out and he offers correction. He calls them to repentance. He calls them to believe the gospel in a fresh and new and deep way. And so I think as we think about the church in our culture, it might help us to go, hey, we can't ignore what the church is bungling because Paul didn't do that. At the same time, Paul never thought the sky was falling, even when the church was massively messing up. Well, I think it's especially helpful about that too. As you're talking, thinking about the nature of the bungling that Paul was addressing in the epistles too, because the issues he was confronting and trying to address and apply the gospel to they were not issues, like you said, unique to the church, but they didn't come from within the church either. They mm-hmm. came from people who were not previously part of the church, but were part of the broader culture and society and brought that culture with them and didn't know or have a filter for how to understand the way in which the church is different from their previous experience. And so 
there's also nothing of this that is actually, it's not just, it's not unique to the church. It's also that it didn't actually come from the church either. Yeah. It is a failure of the church to address those things and to yeah. fence the gospel community in a wise way, but we all have blind spots and that's a constant ongoing process. Yeah. I think that's a huge point. Yeah. So I don't want to underplay some of the gross evil that the church has participated in. Oh, sure. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that the church has participated at times in gross evil and it's never not been that way. Like the church yeah. has always been in bed with the culture in some ways that the New Testament writers were constantly calling them not to be. So again, I want to go back to what he said. The church has not uniquely bungled yeah. something. This era of the church is not the worst era of the church ever. We've always been pretty bad at being the church, but thank God for Jesus and thank God for the Holy Spirit. And so when we bungle something or if we bungle something as a church, we shouldn't ignore it. We should address it, but we also shouldn't panic. We shouldn't panic. That was the first thing. The second thing is much shorter. I just thought it was interesting what he said about births and deaths and marriage presenting an interesting opportunity for the examination of spirituality. Because mm. although people say, you know, I'm a materialist, I'm an atheist, whatever, when a new life comes into the world, they know that there's something of value there. It's not just molecules and atoms. There's a life there, right? Or when someone passes from this life to the next, even if they believe that it's just a material passing into nothing, they don't act that way. And there's something in their heart that knows the value of this. So I thought that was really interesting that he identified those as gospel opportunities. What about you? Yeah, I think my biggest takeaway and, and what I keep thinking about is very related to your second point, especially. And I loved the analogy he brought in from N.T. Wright about spirituality bubbling up through the concrete. Mm. I think that is so helpful as a metaphor for understanding Charles Taylor's kind of framework of living in a world that is disenchanted now because we live in a post-industrial world and all of that. And I keep thinking about the question that I asked him about that he brought that in in response to. Ayan Hirsi Ali, in the article that I was referencing and in some other interviews that she's done, she's talking about how much she's realized that kind of Western culture and Western society is what she calls cut flowers, right? Hmm. And it's this idea that, you know, kind of the secular classical liberal world that we live in, which is the one that has all the assumptions that we take into the church, just like, you know, the Romans were into the Corinthian church. That world is a world of cut flowers, that they are no longer connected to the roots and they've been put in a vase and the vase is beautiful and the, the flowers are beautiful. But over time, eventually they're going to start to wilt. And when they are sustained only with water and they're not being nourished by their roots, then that is an inevitable thing. And when you realize how much of the good and even the framework that we use to evaluate and judge and deem something as good or not is itself the cut flowers of Christendom, you realize that that is actually a meta explanation that explains so much of the dysfunction going on in the world right now. Mm -hmm. And also the dysfunction going on in the church, because we have roots open to us and available to us in the church. It's like we're choosing to favor cut flowers over rooted flowers. Yeah. Right. And 
over time, and I think this kind of connects to this bubbling up through the concrete, once those flowers continue to wilt, it seems like we're starting to see, or at least I hope, an openness to Jesus and spiritual things bubbling up from culture. Hmm. Man, I also, I, I'm kind of kicking myself now. I wish I'd asked him like, hey, is there any reason maybe in particular that kind of aside from maybe Jordan Peterson, the public intellectuals and atheists who are saying, actually, maybe Christianity is good, even if I don't believe, like Tom Holland, I, you know, Ian Hersey Ali is now considering herself a Christian. Like, is there a reason why all of them except for Robert Jordan are British? Like, <laughs> I did right, notice there, that the other day. Yeah. Yeah. Like, is there something about English culture in particular that that bubbling up seems to be happening maybe first? I hope first and not only. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know. I've just been thinking about that because if that is the case and if that kind of analogy is what we can hope for and look forward to, because we've talked about kind of our being in a meaning crisis in previous episodes, right? And if we are in a meaning crisis, that is another way of saying that the flowers are starting to wilt because the primary nutrient we are missing is meaning. And if we're in a meaning crisis, it means that like, you know what, the faster that these flowers start to wilt, then the more we should start seeing that bubbling up through the concrete. And if that's the case, we need those flowers to wilt a bit more, right? Yeah. I mean, that actually frames it as a pretty incredible opportunity, maybe even a, you know, kind of like how Mark Sayers says, oh, what's his line? Crisis precedes renewal. Well, maybe wilting yeah. precedes revival. Yeah. Let me flesh that out just to make sure I understand yeah. the metaphor of the flower. So would like the cutting of the flower, the wilting of the flower, for instance, be the animosity that our culture is at with itself when it comes to political tribalism and how mm. we can't have a decent conversation with someone who doesn't believe what we do anymore without, you know, yelling at him on Facebook or not wanting to have the conversation anymore. But the spiritual bubbling up is this desire for community. Like we don't mm -hmm. want to be with people who are different than us. And yet there's something about the church where it's like, yeah, we're around people who are different than us and we're figuring that out. Does that match the metaphor? And is that what you're going for? I mean, I think that's really similar, but maybe uh, an even more specific example. That might be more like the bouquet as a whole rather than like an individual cut flower. Okay. But like, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, as of the time we're recording this reflection, it's after, you know, Israel had the attack on them from Hamas on October 7th. It's also after the congressional hearings with the presence of the Ivy League institutions saying like context is dependent on whether or not it is a Right. against their speech codes and conduct codes yeah. for whether or not you can call for genocide. And yeah. so I can't remember her first name. Her last name is Gay, the president from Harvard. She recently resigned. Okay. I think this is a good example of a cut flower, right? The entire value and the fact that anyone thinks that those without power should have a voice or that those who have experienced injustice should experience justice and that we should be involved in that happening, that very concept is distinctly and uniquely Christian. Like when Jesus is saying yeah. the last shall be first and the first shall be last, he's talking about an ontological egalitarianism. So our nature and who we are as image bearers, we are equal before God in dignity, value, and worth, right? That is distinctly Christian, but it's been cut from the root. And as a result, I see. It's become the very good value and virtue of 
social justice is very quickly, especially in the last probably several years, is distorting and metastasizing into something that increasingly does not look like the flowers that were uprooted, right? Yeah, it's wilting. I, yeah, and I see what you're saying. It's causing all kinds of chaos and havoc. And yeah, it's causing a lot of animosity, like you're talking about, that conflict, that social conflict. And that's because the social consensus that existed when the flowers were cut, but not wilting yet, that kind of in between, you might even say liminal period, <laughs> as that is eroding and ending and the flowers are wilting, it's getting ugly. And yeah. well, at what point is that no longer a flower and it's just, it's just like dead leaves? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I appreciate the explanation. I do think there's a lot of ways that that flushes out in many ways, that metaphor of the chopped flowers. You also said that we won't hit until we hit a certain threshold of pain. That reminds me a little bit of what we talked about in season one with adaptive change and oh, technical yeah. change. And so, you know, part of the challenge we're facing in our culture is that everyone wants everyone else to change because everyone else is the problem. But really to move forward, we have to embrace that ability that we all need to change. We all need to do things differently in order to move forward as a culture. So do you see that the same way flushing out in terms of the flower analogy? I think that's a million dollar question, right? Yeah. What gets us past our limit of tolerance and forces us to come back from the ledge like what will it take for us to kind of re-examine and maybe plant new flowers so that they can grow again? Yeah. And this is where I'm just so kicking myself for not having Andrew here to ask this question because if you look at history, I'm not aware of an example where we had a similar kind of erosion of social consensus that we weren't snapped out of either through an external threat, you know, for example, World War II, or even World War One, right? In a lot of ways, thinking, especially globally. And without an external threat, the one example I'm aware of that did kind of pull us back from the brink was by jumping off the ledge into civil war in the 19th century. And so there are just not many examples where an entire society or societies generally, plural, do so of their own volition when they realize that. And normally, when it gets to this point, it ends really badly. And so I, I could be completely wrong about that. I am not a historian and I'm generalizing a whole lot of complex things in that, but it makes you wonder. And I think I am a little bit worried about like, okay, like <laughs> we all kind of had a new appreciation for how much of a tolerance we have for foolishness during the pandemic and since, and that threshold is a hell of a lot higher than I thought it was. And so <laughs> how much further do we have to go before we say, you know what, these cut flowers, they're ugly and the petals are falling and making the dinner table nasty and they're starting to rot even. At what point is it going to be worth planting new seeds and being patient for that to grow instead of trying to revive something that's already dead? Yeah. I have no idea. Well, I'm encouraged. I mean, so that, we end on a, on a, so that we end on a good note here. <laughs> and Sorry. we don't depress our listeners. <laughs> yeah. I mean, here's the one thing I didn't say about what I was getting at with my takeaway and kind of what ties into your takeaway is that the kingdom of God is unstoppable. In the midst yeah. of the ruins of culture, the kingdom of God is unstoppable, even with the church bungling so many things. Because it's really not about, I mean, we're called to lay down our lives. We're called to mission. We're called to 
give love away to those who we think doesn't deserve it. But we'll always struggle with that, right? And so the pathway forward is through God's commitment to us in the midst of a broken culture that doesn't seem to have any hope. Mm. And that will continue to be the pattern until Christ returns at the eschaton. And that's the real moment when the kingdom will grow forth and we'll see that the roots that we had in Christ and in the gospel bore much fruit for eternity. Mm. And so I think we can have some hope even as we look at our culture and maybe don't have hope there is a deeper place for us to find hope as we move forward. Well, I mean, even if you think about the promise of Jesus, that those who do not seek to keep their lives and who lose their lives for my sake will find it. That is a promise of death being guaranteed to lead to resurrection. Yeah. And I mean, that means that we can have hope no matter how bad this gets. And if anything, like the more that that is the case, the closer resurrection becomes. And so Man, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Yeah. Brad, you're a great conversation partner. I've enjoyed this episode as I have every other one. Looking forward to the next time. Likewise. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, text it to a friend. Please take a minute and rate this podcast. Leaving a review helps other people find us and connect. You can send us questions or feedback by emailing us at posteverythingpod at gmail.com. Thank you.